Welcome to Michael Lisa in Context. It's great to have you on the podcast. And by the way, the podcast is growing. And we greatly appreciate you sharing this with your friends, sending them a link. We're humbled by people who are subscribing to it. You can listen, obviously, how you are right now, but you can iTunes, any type of Android medium, anywhere podcasts are found, Spotify, Amazon, all over. But if you'd send this out to four or five friends, I think they would appreciate it, and especially because of my guest today in studio, David Nasser. David and I met, I'm going to say, four years ago, maybe? Yeah, a few years ago. Four uh, years ago? We had the privilege of having you at my old job as a guest speaker. It, it was, was so great. It was you. a fascinating experience with uh, 14,000 kids in that room. How many? Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's about 10,000 10, on average yeah. that, that, that attended. So you you were, they don't call you the chaplain. What was your title at Liberty? Campus pastor. Like the official, official title was senior vice president of spiritual development. Yeah. But really, I mean, at the end of the day, it was a shepherding job. It was uh, well, getting with the sheep and just all I loving and helping him grow. Students loved you. And I, I'm sitting there going, man, this guy... He's got a plum job, and these kids adore him, <laughs> and you took it very seriously. It was a privilege to be there. But I wanted, you know, you moved to Nashville recently in I a did. new role. We ran into each other at some function, and we chatted, and I said, I want to get you on the podcast, and you were so kind to come by the studios. Thanks for being here. Man, such an honor. I'm such a big fan of yours and just the impact that you've had in the life of so many people. And now that I live in Nashville. We can I'm, hang. We can hang, we can and hang. I, meet, I meet people that sit under your teaching every week. Like that, they call you pastor as well, and so it's so thankful yeah. for you. Well, we're grateful to be here. 1979, nine-year-old David and his family were forced to flee a country. Tell us the story, brother. Yeah, so in 1979, the Iranian Revolution happened when the Ayatollah Khomeini and his religious zealots overtook the government of Iran. And at that time, my dad was in the military under the Shah's regime. And so when the government was overthrown, the military was in an upheaval and the revolution cost almost a million people's lives. And so I was a nine-year-old kid living in an army base with a dad who was an influential leader, you know, in a, in a position that was being completely turned over. And I remember those days. I remember going to my school, you know, my military school. You have siblings? I do. I have an older sister. And at that time, I had a baby brother who had just been born. How old was your, is your sister at that time? My sister at that time was 13. So 13 and 9, and yeah. this is happening. So she, she's tuned in, too. She's a lot more tuned in than I was, obviously. <sighs> and and I think my parents try to shelter us a little bit. And this is before, like, social media and all of, of those things. We're just watching, you know, the Shah, the king, yeah. be overthrown. I'm watching my mom and dad. They're, like, huddled in the corner, and they're talking. And, you know, you're in, you're in an army base, and you're just kind of sensing as a little kid the instability of it all. And the, the people are just, guards are all of a sudden showing up in front of your house, guarding your house 24 hours a day. And, you know, now, your house now, in the army base. Now, for folks who don't understand the overthrow of the Shah, help the Western mind know what's going on at this time. Because Ayatollah is basically a self-appointed dictator for life. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so the government coup forms and they kick him out of office. Your dad is in the military so what's happening from a geopolitical standpoint for a person that doesn't know the history? Sure. And so I'm probably the wrong person to ask about because no, I was but a no, nine-year-old kid. Yeah. But well, just as to oversimplify it, yeah. we had a king who reigned and ruled. But in his reign and his rule, there was just a lot of decay under the hood. And that opened up a lot of unsettling and a lot of resentment from the poor 
you know, who are watching the disappearance of the middle class and the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And it opened up an opportunity for religious zealots to be able to hit the street and, you know, stir up a revolution. And at that time, they needed a religious leader to kind of be the, the right. headpiece for it. And the Ayatollah Khomeini at that time was an exile in you know, in Europe, kicked out of Iran. And so when the government was overthrown, when the king was overthrown by the people, people hit the street, you know, just a bloody revolution. Now, again, again, for the Western, you don't have a democratic republic, libertarian group of people on the street. You have just Iranian people. Yeah, you you have a young generation of people who were just feeling very unsettled about the leadership that they had. And they felt, again, like the country was sitting on oil, country was very wealthy and they felt like the rich were getting richer and they're being and the king was getting richer and that they you know yet they were just things were not being afforded to them and then they also felt like there was a lot of liberalism that was creeping in that as as iran was becoming more and more western because the king was you know in the back pocket they felt like of of the west the things were going liberal and And as they were going liberal they needed to get back to you know a, a more religious uh, you know, fervent environment. To a lot of people, it was a religious revolution. Huh. And that's why they needed a religious leader in the Ayatollah Khomeini. And this is strictly Islam. It was, right. And so literally at that moment, church became state. You know how here in America we say, you know, we have a separation of church and state. Church became state. It's theocracy. Yeah, and I sometimes tell my American friends, you know, who, who really always think, wow, I wish there was a lot more God in government. I wish we weren't like pushed out of government. I always remind them, the most messed up places in the world are the most religious places in the world. So you just, you don't want religion gone wrong. You want the gospel. You want redemption in the White House. You don't want necessarily more religion in the White House. And so we got that. Iran had a religious leader come in and take over. And at that moment, there was just so much instability. And I, I just remember that as a kid. I remember going to school in my little military school. You know, the most traumatic it got was a few weeks into the revolution. I remember I went to school one day and they called the school assembly and we all went out behind the school. We didn't have like a gym to meet in or anything like that. And as we went outside, I remember my principal standing, you know, in front of the entire student body, just kind of weeping. And there was some soldier we'd never seen before who was standing there. They quieted everybody. He read out the name of three students, mine being the first one and my sister being the second and then wow. another. And he said, come to the front. I was in the front because I was young. So we were like the young kids right in the, towards the front. So I made my way out to the front and the soldier took a gun, put it right at my head, started quoting the Quran and said he was going to take my life. And I remember the school principal getting between me and the gun and just weeping and just saying, please don't do this. And and it was just, you know, you're, you're a little kid. You don't understand what's happening. But it was terrorism, you know, it's like using fear as a weapon to shut down opposition, you know. And so whether he was going to pull the trigger or not, I can tell you, like, it's scary so when someone looks scared enough and they, their hands shaking. They like identified they were you because of your father. Because of who my father was, right. And so my sister never made it to the front. I mean, the principal asked him. I just remember just trying to grasp what was happening as a little kid and asking him to come back another day. And I, after that, I went home and told my mom and dad what what had happened. And I remember my dad sitting me on his lap and hugging me and saying, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Mm. And you're not going back to school. And, and that's the night I found out that my parents were already beginning to plan their escape. 
that my father knew, like, it wasn't just going to be him. They were going to come after. They were probably going to execute his entire family, Mm -hmm. you know, just to make an example out of us. And so at that time, they kind of pushed the fast forward button, knowing we've got to get out. And my mom at that time had been going to see some heart specialists because she'd had some heart issues. My dad went to these doctors and said, look, we want to leverage her health as a way to be able to maybe get out of Iran. And so we were a fairly wealthy family. And so my dad offered to these doctors because it was going to be, you know, dangerous for them to help us. And so he said, look, you can have our home, our cars. Wow. You can have everything. So they just basically brokered a deal, you know, behind some closed doors. And a few days later, my mom acted like her heart was bothering her. The ambulance came and got her. They took her to the hospital. They went in this back room and they came out. And the doctor said she needs this emergency surgery that is best done in Switzerland. Interesting. And they literally took us to the airport. And we called for homework assignments. Like we were going and coming back. And it was all fabricated. We, we got a house sitter. Like we were going and coming back. But we weren't coming back. We were running for our lives. And I, is, I literally remember as and a And this kid, is 1979. Right. I'm and a nine-year-old kid. The clothes on your back and maybe something he'd stashed? We had put some... Small bag? It wasn't even smart. I mean, we had put... My dad had bought some jewelry and they had taken a, uh, a, a piece of luggage and they had taken the lining out and they had stuffed the luggage yeah. with some jewelry and then they'd put the lining, lining back. back and I remember holding my dad's hand in the airport and his hand just kept shaking and he kept saying to my mom as we were going to the airport, this is so dumb. If they find this jewelry, we're done. We're done. But you know, when you look back at your testimony, it's not so much that Sunday where you become a believer, you know, on a Sunday right, morning church right. service. It's how before even you knew God, God knew you. Mm. And I look back now and see how God's protective, righteous right hand just held my family out of that at that moment and delivered us out of there. So, so we you got literally, plane. you make it in Switzerland in a, yeah. what, a nine-hour flight? How long? From- it wasn't a long flight. It's not that far, from okay. actually, from Iran to Europe. So I don't remember exactly how long, but I remember going up in the air, landing yep. in Switzerland, and the ambulance meeting us at the, at the side and my mom sitting up. And my dad asking to speak to the pilot. And once we'd landed, my, my mom and I wasn't there. I was just this little kid sitting there, like, honestly, more infatuated with all the snacks that were sitting there in my tray. <laughs> and I just watched my mom and dad talk. And now I understand that they were saying, look, this was all fabricated. We've planned an escape. We want political asylum. Whoa. And so we got taken to the American consulate, to the American embassy. And we, that's where my father wanted to be taken. And he brought his case of why we can't go back. And he said, I don't mind being executed and killed like all the other soldiers that are be, but I'm doing this for the sake of my family. Can you help us? And at that time, nobody was allowing Iranians into America because 54 Americans had been held hostage in the American embassy. So we were from the wrong place at the wrong time trying to make it to the States. And so we got stuck in Europe from that moment on for about nine months trying to make it to America. And we moved actually from Switzerland eventually to Munich, Germany, where we had been told that the American embassy there might be more sympathetic okay. to someone like my dad's case. You know, so my, my, my How my old dad. is your dad at this time? 40s. Okay. And so we were stuck there for, for nine months. And for nine months, I mean, we tried every way we could. And my dad's a hard worker. He's not going to give up easy. So. Michael, we tried legally. We tried illegally. <laughs> we tried. My dad, you know, right. he went to America. We, he called all his American friends that he knew. Several of them said, you know, 
hey, this man was a good man. He helped us when we were in, in, in Iran, you know, at the flight training schools and, and the doors just would not open up. I'll never forget. My mom got us together one day and she had what I like to call her American idea. <laughs> and she <laughs> said, I want to try something. She said, you know, we've exhausted all these other options. And she said, um, since we want to go to America, she said, um, I know this sounds, this is bad theology. All right, I get it. But she said, we ought to ask America's God to let us into his country. Mm. And she showed us a picture. I was, I remember it was this like little photo. And she said, do you know who this is? And I, we didn't know. And she said, this is Jesus Christ. She showed us a picture of a white man with a beard and a mullet, kind of a duck dynasty looking dude. <laughs> and she said, she said, uh, this is Jesus Christ. And she said, and we ought to ask him. He's American. And we ought to <laughs> ask him. We ought to ask him to let us into his country. And that was we literally held hands, and my mom started praying in Persian that Jesus, you know, please basically let us into your country. And that's what's so great about God. The God is bigger than bad theology, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. And a week and a half later, after we mentioned Christ in a prayer, the doors just miraculously opened up, and we were heading to America. And so I remember my first ever introduction of Jesus being, wow, Jesus is this American who's apparently like opening up some doors. And I, I, thought, ho- I hope you saw that picture. <laughs> I, don't have, I wish I did. You know, I guess I could just get some find clip one. art from yeah, Jim Caviezel or something. There you you go. Know? There but, you go. but I remember coming to America and just thinking, I hate religion because it destroyed my country right. and I want to have nothing to do with religion. But hey, Jesus, thanks. Even at nine, you had a comprehension that you hated religion. Yeah, because I, I don't know most nine-year-olds don't think this. I don't know most nine-year-olds don't think I hate God. Interesting. You know, most yeah. nine-year-olds get up and think, I don't know, should I eat this crayon or whatever? But I I decided I hated God because I felt like he went first. Got it, got it. You know, somebody standing in front of you with a gun at your forehead, quoting the Quran, basically saying they're leading worship, not with a guitar, but with a gun. You know, like they, they are acting out as an act of worship to take your life. Or someone saying, I'm coming after you. So to me... That was just everything that had happened, leaving our country, leaving our my father's position, leaving all the stability we had, leaving everything, it was because God had shown up in Iran and had messed so up our country. It's still is it religion still, had shown up. It's Seventy-nine hours or eighty did you finally make it to the states? It's eighty. Eighty, you make yeah. it to the states. And, and we went to Colleen, Texas. Get out. Because my dad had taken flight training there. Yeah. And we got an American sponsor, who was one of his friends, who was a, a colonel in the army. Yeah. In Colleen. And so we move, can you imagine, during the Iranian hostage situation where everybody's waking up every day and Dan Rather Watching starting every day's news. This is day whatever, whatever. Of the, that was big news oh, because yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't just something that was happening across the ocean, you know, somewhere 15 hours away. It involved 54 Americans. And so it was patriotism on full tilt of like, how do we get these people back? Yeah. In the middle of all of that, so much of that just front-loaded in the emotion of it all. We, as an Iranian family, moved to Texas, <laughs> patriotic Texas, to Colleen, Texas, where the largest army base in the world is. And so, I mean, can you, I mean, I, I just like all the time, like just a wedgie waiting to happen. You know, like, <laughs> so I just come in. I don't have the right language. I don't have the right clothes. I'm completely fish out of water. Plus, I am like not just from the wrong place. I'm from like the worst place. Could you speak English at that point? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. Not a whole lot, just a little bit. So I just parachuted into the American culture and man, it just went from like tough to tougher. Really? Yeah. And I like to say, you know, I went from like the danger of physical terrorism to like emotional terrorism. 
the weapon of mass destruction and that being just loneliness. Wow. You know, and just for years, that was me. I was the kid that, you know, there would be 15 kids in the classroom and there would be 14 invitations for the birthday party. And I was the one who yeah. didn't get one, you know, yeah. and I just remember thinking like, this is God's fault. We've escaped halfway across the world to come here for, to be refugees, basically. And this doesn't feel like refuge, you know, at all. Now, Carter's president at this time, if I recall. He right? was, yeah. And didn't this, some of the early footage where they were killed a hostage yeah. And tossed them off. Was it the tarmac of a plane or something? I can't, hey boy, I'm, I'm embarrassed now. My own history recollection. I don't know about that. But hostage. it's it's a I, terrible time in the country. Yeah. And you guys are enemy number one. Right. right. Guilt by association. 100%. And, and, and you got to sound like people are, like Reagan's running on that. You know what I mean? People yes. are running for office on this. Yes. I mean, it was the day that President Reagan was being sworn in. Yep. It was that day that the hostages were released. released. I don't know if you remember all yeah. that. Yeah. Matter of fact, ironically enough, we had President Carter as a guest at my old job, and I'm having dinner with him. It's just me, Get President out. Carter, and my wife. You know, wow. and we're just sitting Tell there the story. having dinner with him. And I'm like, "Can you give me some insight?" Because I was nine years old, and we were very upset with you. <laughs> you know, as the president. What did he say? Oh, he just gave me an earful about like the politics at play at that moment and how you know it was not beneficial for the other side on the political aisle. You know, for him to be able to broker that victory. You know, and so whether it's true or not, I mean, I can tell you this. Anyway. He was a pleasant man. Oh, yeah. He's what, a nice guy. And, I've, I've met him once. But yeah. politics aside, yeah. like what he's done with Habitat for Humanity. Sure. We can sure. we can join arms. in. Yeah. But anyway, so I was just this kid, man, who just comes to America. I don't understand any of that. All I know is, you know, you're um, a fish out of water. You're yeah. nine years old. You're in Colleen, Texas. You're in a public school, I suspect. I was. Yeah. And fast forward a bit. By the time middle school and high school, are you adjusting? Are you getting your land legs? So we moved from Colleen. My dad actually, because he was a helicopter pilot and an instructor, he did get a job eventually in Enterprise, Alabama at Fort Rucker, which is another Army base with Bell Helicopters. Yeah. And so we moved all the way to Alabama. And for a few months, that was great until – this is before political correctness where they basically came to him and said, man, like, again, you're from – the wrong place. And so it's just a lot of these guys don't want to necessarily have a flight instructor that is from Iran, you know, a Muslim from Iran. And so he lost his job there. And now, he now was he leading y'all? Had you found a mosque? Were you part of an Islamic community? No, or not? we weren't devout. So you're secular. Yeah. Okay. I would say my mom was more devout than my father, okay. certainly. So but, he loses his job. But my mom wasn't wearing a chador, okay. you know, covering over her head. But we were pretty westernized for, for Muslims. Yeah. And we were Shiite by heritage more than anything else, Good. I would say. Good to know. And so we lived in Alabama for years, and all through elementary school, all through basically middle school, I was kind of the kid who ate his lunch alone every day at the lunchroom mm. table. I was the kid who got picked last at all the sports. And my freshman year in high school, the day before, like summer was about to be done, and I'm about to start the next the school the next okay. day. I was sitting in my room, and I was crying because I didn't want school to start the next day because high school to me just meant – a whole nother level of, you know, like hardship. And my dad heard me and he came in and he said, what's wrong? And I told him, I said, look, I'm just bummed that summer is going to be over and I got to go to school tomorrow. And I like summer because I don't get it bullied in the summer. And He felt sorry for me. And so he put me in the car. And by this time, he'd learned how to make a lot of money. My dad was just strong work ethic, you know, and it opened up a rug shop and nice. some other stuff. And he yeah. was doing really well. So my dad put me in the car 
and try to fix it. And so he drove me to the mall. And he got me a new haircut, new shoes, new clothes. Nice. I tell people I went from geek to chic, you know. And so <laughs> I go to school the next day, and I found out what you and I know. You don't have to be from Iran to know this, that people will become your friend more because of the label that you wear than the person you're really on the inside. So I did the opposite of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I conformed to the cool patterns kid. of the world. Yeah. So I went from the kid nobody wanted to hang with to all of a sudden the kid who had the right haircut all of a sudden was driving the right car. All of a how sudden, and, he, I, and I learned. How did he have the insight to do that? That's yeah. interesting. I think he knew a lot of what was broken was I just didn't blend in. And I was always okay. this outcasted kid. And I think he tried to fix it, but it was like trying to put out a fire by putting a cup of gasoline on it. Because we pivoted. I went from the nobody to all of a sudden the kid who was, you know, learning cool. how to how to be cool but at least when I was a nobody, I was myself. Mm. And all I'd become is just this guy who had the dog and pony show in order to find friends. And so, yeah, all of a sudden, I learned how to end up at the right lunchroom table. I learned how to dump the right girl before she could dump me. You know, I learned how to be cold, to be perceived as cool. I learned how to throw the right parties and all that. But again, it's so true where it says in Scripture, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world mm-hmm. but to forfeit his soul? Mm-hmm. And I'd completely sold out. So I ended up, in high school, on paper, becoming a pretty popular kid. But honestly, by the time I'd graduated, I was worse off than I was before. Wow. You know, because I'd completely, you know, basically taken my brain, put it on the top shelf and said, everyone else can tell me who I need to be. And, and what so, year did you graduate high school? 1988. 88, okay. Yeah. So I graduated in 88. I barely graduated because all my energy had been in like into partying and all that. So... I barely graduate, and a couple of months after high school, one night I'm in the car with the only buddy I had left, like who hadn't gone off to college yet. It's like the end of the summer. And to be really honest, we were smoking weed together in the car. And while we were talking, right before I walked in the house, my buddy invited me to church (laughs) the next day. And I know that sounds weird. Like he's literally handing me a joint. Isn't that the South, this by the way? This is good stuff. Yeah. Hey, man, you want to go to church so, tomorrow? Yeah. He's like, yeah. come to church with me tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So he invited me to church, and I didn't want to go. I hated religion. But he told me about all the people from our high school that went to his church. And he told me about all the pretty girls that we knew from high school that went to his church. And I got motivated to go for the wrong reason. But I went to church the next day completely just to be social. And God had something so much bigger in store. So I went to church, and imagine one of the biggest partiers you so know. So you're 16 you know? or 17 now? What, uh, I was uh, right at 18. Right yeah, 18, yeah. okay. And you go to church, yeah. okay. What's your first impression walking in? They had a youth rally. I remember I pulled up at the church, and my buddy had said, hey, come to the gym. We have like a youth rally. And so I go in the gym, and as soon as I walked in, I look across you know, the room, and I see like five or six people I used to hang with. So I walk up to my friends. Every other word out of my mouth is a cuss word because I don't know how to play church, except they're acting very different, you know. They're saying, bless you, nobody's sneezing. You know, they're all just like, not, like they're just church, you know. Yeah. And so once again, just fish out of water. Like I didn't know church culture. And so within a few minutes, they're all kind of embarrassed to be standing next to the blatant mm. church guy. And the youth pastor runs up and goes, all right, everybody, have a seat, have a seat. So I was kind of towards the front. So I go by myself and I sit in the front row. So even like the guy that invited me to church isn't sitting with me. Yeah. (laughs) 
And I don't think some of that was like avoiding me. It was just like, I didn't know in church culture, nobody sits up front. <laughs> like in every other culture, right. you know, you, I'm going to the Journey you, concert yeah, tonight. You, like we want to get as close as we can to, to the band. Absolutely. In Christian world, everybody like sits back, yeah. you know? And so I didn't know that was the cool thing to do. So like, I just go in the front row, like I'm trying to get the best seat. So I go by myself and I sit down and I look up and I see this guy walking towards me. This guy's name was Larry No. And he's, uh, he was half Korean, half American. And he didn't go to my high school. He went to our rival high school. But the kid was legend in our town. Mm. He was a football hero. He looked like a sumo wrestler, you know. And he was a linebacker for, for Hoover. And I went to Vestavia. And so I look up and I see him walking towards me. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Like the one time this guy and I had met, it had not gone well. And it was because of me. We had met about a year before that at a party where he had walked up to try to share the gospel with me. And I was just ridiculing him left and right. And the reason was, just to be really honest, is he'd walked up to me and I was standing there with my girlfriend and he starts talking to us about God. And my girlfriend, while he was talking to us for a few minutes, let go of my hand. And then she went, "Mm," which is like, you know, shorthand for like, "Mm," like, like he's getting to me. And I didn't want him getting to her because I had plans for her. (laughs) Right, right. You know what I mean? I'm just being very blunt and saying like, I was very threatened by like this guy. And I was like, hey, well, I don't want him to spoil the night. You know, like we have plans. And so I just start trying to hijack the conversation. So he's talking and I'm saying funny things. In my mind, I knew like, I know he's bigger than me, but he's a Christian. He's not going to punch me. You know, so that would be like a contradiction to his message (laughs) about love. (laughs) And so I was being really rude and cruel and he was just being kind. And then I won. He got frustrated and he just walked away. So imagine what a jerk I'd been to this guy. And a year later, I'm sitting at his church and he's like walking towards me. So I thought, now he's here we go. Now it's like his home turf. He's going to get me back. So he walks over and he goes, David, right? And I'm like, yeah, Larry, what's up? He goes, I remember you. And that's what I was afraid of. (laughs) And he looks at me and he says the opposite of what I deserve. He goes, I'm so glad you're here. Wow. I didn't understand grace getting the opposite of what you deserve. Unmerited favor, undeserving love. I didn't understand that. So he's just gracious. He goes, I'm so glad you're here. He goes, this is crazy you're here. He goes, can I sit beside you? And he comes and he sits down beside me. And the youth pastor says, get out your Bibles real quick. And I didn't have a Bible. Right. You know, but then Larry quietly opened up his Bible and put it on my lap. And, yeah. and the whole time, I'm not even listening to the lesson. I'm just thinking, I was a jerk to this guy. Why is he being nice to me? I didn't understand. He was being gracious, graceful, you know. And so when the Sunday school lesson was over, he stood up and he goes, I just got to tell you, I didn't listen to one thing that guy was teaching. All I kept thinking about is you being here. I said, dude, I didn't listen to one thing that guy was teaching. All I kept thinking about is like, why are you not punching me? He said, he said, dude, he goes, I've been praying for you. He goes, this has been an answer to prayer. And I didn't know what all that meant. What that meant, yeah. By the way, fast forward about a, three weeks later one night, I was at his house. And he went to the restroom. I was just kind of hanging out in his bedroom. And I looked over and I saw a yearbook from my high school, even though he didn't go to my high school. And I walked over and I grabbed it and I opened it up. And he had circled like a dozen people with a Sharpie. And I was one of the people. It was creepy. And when he came out of the bathroom, I was like, why did What's you have me? About? And, and he said, remember the day we met that Sunday morning at church a couple weeks ago? And I told you I've been praying for you. He said, I had circled 10 people that I thought were influencing people away from God, that God would let them switch teams. Wow. It's crazy. Wow. And so he said, I knew you motivate, you're a leader and you're leading a lot of people straight. He said, so I've been praying for you by name. I told you that three weeks ago. So anyway, going back to the first day we met, 
he looks at me and he says, he says, man, I'm glad you're here. I've been praying for you. And then he goes, I don't know if you remember this band, but he said, we've got a band coming tonight. Their name is Russia. They're a Christian band <laughs> from Russia. <laughs> I just remember that was so weird. Okay. I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, man, there's this Christian band, a rock band, like, like, you know, like Def Leppard from Russia. <laughs> And it was like Russia spelled weirdly. All right, you know? of course. And he was like, you got to come back tonight. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I ain't coming tonight. <laughs> he was like, why? I said, man, I'm not coming back. And so he said, okay. He goes, if you don't want to come tonight, he says, we'll just come see you. And I had no idea what they meant. But they had this thing called visitation. Yep. And, buddy, it was like stronger pitch than Amway people, man. Whoa. I mean, like the next Monday night, literally a dozen or more of them showed up what? in my house. And I didn't even know where they got my address. They just showed up at my house, and they were like, can we come in for a few minutes? And they came in, and two hours later, they were going through all the beads in their little bracelet at the Roman road, and they start sharing the gospel with me, you know? A dozen and, high school kids. Yeah, I think there's actually, like, more than a dozen, 15, 17. Like, they just, like, a bunch of them just Was Larry showed up. part of that? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah oh, yeah. Okay. And so they came in, they sat down, they started talking to me about God, and, you know, basically— God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that if you, David, will believe in him, will not perish but have eternal life. And their pitch was good, man. And when they got done, I said, guys, I'm sure he loves you. <laughs> you seem like really good people. You don't know how bad I've been. And they were like, it's not about how good you've been or how bad you've been. He loves you not because of, you know, what you've done, but because of who he is. And, and they left. And on their way out, one of them said, we'll see you next Monday. And they weren't kidding because, man— <laughs> Every Monday night. We were the Iranians, but we got terrorized by a Southern Baptist youth group. They, they would come to my house, and every Monday night they would sit there, and they would just share the gospel. And it'd be the same. Like, it'd be different verses. It'd be, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Or John 14, you know, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So they'd bring different Bible verses, but the same truth, that I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and his name was Jesus, and he lived a perfect life and then died a sinner's death for me. And, and I kept telling him, I'm not interested in being religious. And they kept saying, we're not interested in you becoming right. religious. And I kept telling them, I hate religion. And they'd go, we, we do, do too. too. Yeah. It's the thing standing between <laughs> us. You keep thinking, you yeah, know, yeah. they would be like, we will quit judging you for who you're not if you'll quit judging us who we're not. That's, that'll work. And honestly— I played hard to get, but they would come to my house and drag me to church on Sundays. I say drag me, but I'd be dressed ready to go, <laughs> upset if they were five minutes late. Because, because honestly, like I was acting cocky, like I didn't, but I was so insecure, so broken, and I'd never seen like authentic. I, I just they, they cared. They had something, yeah, but and more they than even they cared you. for me, they just they had something I didn't have. Interesting. You know what I mean? And so one night. We go to church, and after church, we go eat. And literally, Larry knows sitting there at the Shoney's, man, and he's using sugar packets and sweet and low packets to share the gospel <laughs> with me again. I'm kind of listening, and they'd come to pick me up that Sunday night. So we get out of the restaurant. We all pile in his Honda Accord. I think it was in the car. I can't remember exactly. But I remember I'm in the back, and there's like four people in the back. You know, instead of three. So I'm kind of like almost on the lap of somebody in the back. He starts backing out of the parking space, and as he's backing out of the parking space, the lady who was our waitress like, runs out to the parking lot, and she just starts knocking on the window, which is like almost by my face, like 
back window. And so it startled me. And so he stops the car. It's like he's half backed out and she's knocking on the window. And he rolls the window down. And so she's like now yelling. I'm like stuffed in the back seat of this car. <laughs> right. She's like, she yells in the car. She says, hey, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to bother you guys. She goes, I just had to run out and stop you because when you guys paid your bill, you overpaid. She says somebody must have thought they left a twenty, but it was actually a hundred dollar bill. She said there's a there's well over a hundred dollars here. She goes one of them is a hundred dollar bill, and you guys way over tipped me. And uh, I just wanted to stop you because I didn't want anybody to get in trouble. And and as soon as she said that, I remember Larry turns around, and I'm just getting this front row seat, like I'm literally a couple of feet away from this lady's face, who's like leaned into the car. And Larry turns around and he looks at her and he says, "That wasn't a mistake." He says, "You know." We knew the bill was this, but you mentioned when we first got here that, you know, you were saving up because you were working the night shift because of something. And I didn't even hear her say that. He said, I heard you say that. And so we just all pooled our money and wanted to bless you because it sounds like you're trying to do good for Christmas gifts for your family. And we just wanted to give you everything we had. And she just starts crying. And she's not even listening to him. And so he's, he's saying this to her. This lady's like right in front of my face and she just starts crying. And then he says, well, don't cry. He goes, we'll come back next week. And then she yells in my ear. She goes, well, make sure you get my table. You know, she's like, wants to secure their coming back to her. And they say another word and he backs up and he starts driving away. And Larry starts crying. And people around me are sniffling. They're crying. And I start crying. And I know that sounds like the weirdest story, but I just remember at that moment, all the sugar packets and all the stuff like (laughs) makes sense. Like I just thought, what is wrong with these people? (laughs) You know, like most teenagers are like rude and cruel to people in the service industry and they don't see them as human beings with names. And like what just happened and all the message about like being honorable and loving and God, all of that was exemplified. Not, yeah. And I just remember as they we were driving away, I thought, I'm going to take them seriously. You know? And the next Sunday, I went to their church and the preacher preached. A guy named Charles Carter was the pastor there. He preached the gospel and I felt really convicted. And I thought, man, this is starting to get to me. <laughs> you know? And so I left and I went home and I tried to get away and Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? Mm-hmm. If I go to the mountains, you're there. If I go to the heavens, you're there. So I went home, and God's spirit was just waiting on me at home. And that sermon was still, like, ringing in my head. And an hour later, in my room, I just hit one knee, and I said, Jesus, I know you're real. I want to continue to hate religion, <laughs> but you're all right with me. Come on. Like, let's do this. Like, like, come into my life. I was 18 and two months old the night that I got saved. So, Yeah. And so I am, my story is not about some Iranian kid that turned out all right. It's literally about a church. <laughs> it's about a church that showed up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I kept messing up. This, these what, Christians what's just What's the backstory did. on Larry and this youth leader or whatever? I mean, yeah. these guys to take it that serious. Bro, it was them. Rare. It was all them. What I didn't tell you also is the reason I even got permission to go to church is, so, you know, go back to the night where I'm smoking weed with my buddy right and he's like come to church and i told him i said hey man like my dad doesn't really govern what happens on a saturday night but he's gonna know if i get up on a sunday morning (laughs) put on khakis and go somewhere normally that's that's when we sleep in right so i said i'm gonna have to go ask my dad but he's not gonna let me go to church he said well why don't you go ask him anyway so just to get my buddy off my back right 
I'm stoned. I walk in the house. He walks up to the door with me to make sure I'm not, you know, like not really yeah, going to ask. Yeah. I walked down the hallway. I knocked on my parents' bedroom door and I, and I said, hey, I'm home. It's midnight. I'm safe. No need to get out of bed. This is like the door's closed. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I said, hey, I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to say no. Just say no really loud so my friend can hear. Right. He's in the hallway. He wants to know if I can go with him tomorrow to church. And instead of saying no, my dad yells from his bed, what is the name of it? <laughs> Listen to this, man. What I didn't know was <laughs> what happened was. They're working on him too. <laughs> two weeks before, I'm stoned standing in front of that door asking if I can go to church. My dad owned, he had bought a French restaurant. I know it sounds weird, but stick with me. All right. My dad had bought a French restaurant. All right. In the botanical gardens. I remember. Two weeks before, there were these people from this church guy named Aubrey Edwards, who was the worship pastor. Back then they called him the choir director or whatever of the church. And some other folks from the church that had gone to my dad's restaurant to eat and they'd seen how he was shorthanded on wait staff. And instead of like complaining <laughs> about the bad service, they'd gotten up and helped wait on tables at his restaurant. Then they went back the next day you can't and make helped it up. him again. You can't make it up. Then that dude invited my dad to choir practice. My military <laughs> tone deaf dad. <laughs> Muslim dad to choir practice, but because they'd been nice to him, yeah, it's so Romans too. Kindness leads to repentance. My dad freaking went to choir yeah, practice, yeah, you got Michael. To. That's and crazy. then, so for two weeks they'd been my dad's friend, and my dad's not the communication type. Yeah, he's not like going on long walks with his son. So I had no idea. So I'm standing there two weeks later, going, "Can I go to church?" And instead of saying no, he goes, "What is the name of it?" My buddy who's stoned yells out the name. And out of 1,100 churches in Birmingham, it's the exact same church as the people that have been helping him out. Amazing. If that doesn't make you a Calvinist, nothing <laughs> will, man. And so my dad goes, my dad goes, when he hears the name of the church, my, my friend yells, Shades. My dad goes, I know those people, but you can go there, but only there. So the whole reason I even got to go to church in the first place was because a bunch of Christians showed up at my dad's the restaurant. French restaurant. Amazing? And so my whole story is about a church that showed up. It was not like we did everything wrong. David Nasser consistently did everything <laughs> wrong. My dad, but Aubrey Edwards led worship, not from a choir loft, but at my dad's restaurant waiting on tables. You know what I'm saying? And then Larry No and a bunch of kids in that youth group saw the 1040 window come to them. <laughs> They're like, you're in. We're coming after you. They went after me. You know what I'm saying? And unbelievable. Because they, and I was rude to them. I was cruel. I mean, I was yeah. in, in all that insecurity that plays out into the weirdest ways. But they just consistently stayed, you know, loving. And our whole story is about just a church that was a, honestly, believers who were believable, you hmm. know? Hmm. And so, you know... It doesn't take a budget to do that, man, at a church. No. You don't need the coolest building. You don't need a guy with the right skinny jeans. You, don't, you just need people to be kind and gracious and graceful. You know, all the theology we talked about never made sense until I saw them treat a waitress, you know, like God would want us to treat anybody who's important to him. Mm. And so my whole story is about that more than anything else. 18, come to Christ. Yeah. Fast forward a bit. Yeah. I get saved. You get saved. I get in my room. And and I starting... first person I shared my faith about out loud was my dad. They they're out of town that night. They come home. My dad hears me crying in my bedroom. <laughs> he walks in. I mean he opens the door. First time I mean I just given my life to Christ in my room. 
And he goes, what is wrong? And I'm crying. I said, Dad, I gave my life to Jesus tonight. I became a Christian tonight. And they knew I'd been going to church, but they were not planning on that. And I said, I became a Christian tonight. And my dad says to me, like, I am an hour old Christian. He goes, you cannot be a Christian. We're Muslims. And I was like, we are? I mean, the most devout I ever saw my father as a Muslim was the night I became a Christian. <laughs> it quickened his faith instantly. <laughs> he was like, and I get it. It was his pride. I mean, yeah, it, it was like he'd lost his Everything. pedigree. He'd lost, yeah. And now because of his prodigal son, he'd lost his faith, you know? And I know what they said. I mean, my dad didn't get super upset. They went in their bedroom and I know what they said. They probably said, I'm guessing, but they probably said, he's got a tennis racket and all the tennis lessons and the voluntary academy that never panned out. <laughs> he's got a surfboard, even though we live four hours away from any body of water, never panned out to anything. He's got a guitar and he wanted to be Eddie Van Halen and that never panned out. Like, let him have a Bible and he'll get over it. But they didn't realize when you truly give your life to Christ, it's not like a little cold that you catch and they go, that's a new you. Yeah. you know? And so a couple of weeks later, man, I went to get baptized at my church. They really wanted to baptize me. I don't know if they got like extra credit for Duncan <laughs> Middle Easterners or what they really wanted to baptize. So it's a couple of weeks later when I went to get baptized at my church, I got kicked out of the house. My parents disowned me for that. And I moved in with uh, Larry No. <laughs> I wow. called him and said, dude, I just got kicked out of the house. It's your fault. He was like, you're giving me way too much credit, but come on. <laughs> and he came and got me and I moved in with these, uh, you know, guys that all lived as interns. Charles Billingsley, who was out on staff yeah, with me, he was yeah. one of the interns. We all lived in this intern house Great. and I was broke and I'd never been more rich. And on paper, it looked like I'd committed kamikaze suicide because my parents disowned me and there was no more money to go to college. But, but then all of a sudden, God was just bringing father figures into my life and different people in my life. And Five months after I was a Christian, my sister called me one night and through Campus Crusade on her campus, she'd given her life to Christ. Wow. Where was she in college? Montevella. Okay. Yeah. And wow. so five months after that, 10 months after I was a Christian, my mom called me one night really loud on the phone. She was like, tonight I become Christian. I'm like, why are you yelling? She goes, I want your father to hear because he's not kicking me nowhere. Oh, that's how she rolled in. My mom, she got saved. And then five months after that, my brother Benjamin who was Down syndrome, and, and he's now with the Lord. With God took him home through cancer, but Benji got saved. Buddy, my mom was putting Bible verses in my dad's food and his <laughs> Rogaine, everything. She was going after him. And two and a half years passed, and then my dad professed Christ as wow. Savior. And so one by one, I've seen my whole family come to the Lord. And wow. Are your folks still yeah. living? My mom's with the Lord, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, we escaped from Iran saying she, need, she needed open-heart surgery. And she eventually had several open heart surgeries. <laughs> she had dementia as well, but mm. she she passed because of her heart issues. Okay. But yeah, so she passed. And your dad's still living. My dad's still living, and he's not doing great. Mm. To be very honest, like I think God saved him, but he doesn't like he's really depressed. Mm. You know, losing my mom and then losing my brother Benji. It's a lot. Really did him in. It's a lot. He's pretty angry with God, and I'd say he has. <laughs> He has eternal life, but certainly not the victorious mm -hmm. life. Certainly not, mm -hmm. certainly not living in a place where he's in a good spot. And it's just really, really hard right now. But so much of his life was built around his son and yeah, and his wife and well, and all he went through to yeah. get you all here. Yeah, uh, those are those are deep, deep scars. Right. Um, so fast forward, you meet your wife. Yeah, man, she was at a youth camp. I was working for Rick Stanley. He became a, Rick Stanley was Elvis Presley's stepbrother. 
And so I get saved. I get kind of disowned. But then like all these people, God just brings all these pastors in my life and everything. And I go to our church's youth camp and our guest speaker was Rick Stanley. And the first night at camp, they announced our camp pastor is late and won't be with us tonight, but we're going to watch him live on Larry King. Back then, that was a big show on CNN. Yeah. And so this guy, brighter than the sun, I mean, big star, like was seven-page article that week in People magazine. They printed it out for every camper. Like, read this about your camp pastor. He was on CNN. It was like the anniversary of Elvis Presley's dying or whatever. So this guy comes the next day, a day late to camp, and I remember larger than life. I mean, he looked like yeah. a musician, Rick Stanley. He, he walks over and says, uh, are you David? I said, yeah. He said, the youth pastor on the drive from the airport here was telling me about you. He said, I heard you got a story to tell. He said, I'm a storyteller. I like, he goes, I like to tell my story about what God's done in my life. And it's all about Elvis. And he goes, oh, I think you got a story to tell. He goes, you want to get your stuff and come stay with me for the week? And he put me under his wing, became a dad to me. And then a guy named Jay Strack and then the Billy Jay Graham Strack. organization. Yeah, all yeah, these yeah. spiritual fathers just showed Strack's up. Strack's amazing. Yeah. And they just started taking me under the wing. And I would travel with them. And so when I say travel with them, I was Rick Stanley's T-shirt salesman. And I sold his book, Caught in a Trap and the Touch of Two Kings. Get it? With Elvis. Well, yes, yes. Right, so I was just selling those <laughs> for him and doing the best I could just to serve his ministry. And we were at Covenant College. And there was a counselor there. Her name was Jennifer Davis. And... That's how we met. You needed some counseling. I needed some counseling. <laughs> you know? And so we met at camp. And honestly, she had a boyfriend at that time. And so I was smitten, but she wouldn't have, she had no interest in me. And two years later, oh, they broke up yeah. and she needed counseling. So I yeah, was there. Totally. And so I asked her out and we went on a first date. And she was the opposite of me, man. She was a good girl. I mean, I was some like quasi Muslim who smoked weed and saw I me. Mean, I was just, everything was broken in my life. And, she grew up completely sheltered. She was 16 when she was put on the pastor search committee. She was Bible drill champion in the state of Alabama. I, I've seen the ribbons. Like that's back when like you earned ribbons. They didn't just give everybody. Like she was like this good girl. Like, Firstborn. Yes, and like Amishly clean. You know what I mean? Like, like I tell her all the time. Like you should have shot further than Southern Baptist. You were like indie Baptist. Good. You know. Like, but, Hard chill, yeah. yeah, but the irony was she was a counselor at a crusade and as an 18-year-old became a believer. And she, so she went from like religion to redemption. Yeah, yeah. I went from like rebellion to redemption. Yeah. And so weirdly enough, she went from like church righteousness to Christ righteousness. I went from like unrighteousness to yeah. Christ righteousness. Yeah. But we both were like late, into, you know. So on our third date— you know, we realized like, boy, she got saved at 18. I got saved at 18. We were, we were just sitting there at Olive Garden crying over what God had done in our life. And, and God put us together. So I married this incredible woman. That, what year did y'all marry? Oh, my gosh. It was June 4th. I can't remember the That's year. That's good. You're there. You're halfway there. <laughs> I hope she never listens to this podcast. I don't remember the year. We've been married 28 years. Okay. So, yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, honestly, one of the greatest arsenal God has ever given me in sharing my story is I'll share my story a lot of times and then I'll just flip the script and say, you know, my wife on paper was the opposite. <laughs> but she was 18 when she came to Christ. And I flip it to the room and I say, you know, some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, you don't know how bad I've been. I'm like, I know. And some yeah. of you are sitting here going, you don't know how good I've been. And I go, she knows. <laughs> but both of us were 18 when we had to meet at the foot of the cross and say, only you, Jesus, you know. 
And I can't tell you how many people have said, man, like, I'm listening to your story, but it was what you shared about your wife that really woke me up to the fact that I don't really know God, you know? I do stuff for him. Mm-hmm. It's all been That's about one works. of the dangers of growing up in the Western church. Yeah. You know, I mean, my, my kids, unfortunately or not, are pastor's kids. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's complicated because that's all you know. That's right. And then you meet people, you know, like a pre-converted David Nasser. You meet that's somebody right. like, oh, maybe this life's more fun. Or 100%. Whatever. Both sides have a, a lot to overcome. Right. Whether you don't know anything about God or you grew up knowing everything about God. 100%. You have to own it. 100%. And I've just got this weird gypsy of a story. You know, like people go, well, he converted from Islam to Christianity. And that's somewhat true. But at the but same that's not time, the real story. no, yeah. my, mine was so black and white. I mean, everything in my life was broken. I broke it. You know, I broke everything. And, you know, everything in my life was broken on paper. Like everything shifted 180 black and white for my wife. Everything in her life was OK. And she was this good girl, had this very sheltered life, amazing reputation, full scholarship to Bama and like all, all the stuff just, you know. She was on paper, like, but then, like, the main thing was missing, you know? And so we couldn't have been more opposites. She's introvert. I'm the extrovert. You know, she follows me around at parties and just, I'm so sorry. We'll get that dry clean. I'm so sorry. He meant, <laughs> like, she's the quiet. But, but somehow God brought us together, and we just been able to team up, you know, and being able to do ministry. And so I do wonder who it's harder for, hmm. you know? And I think it's harder for somebody like that who's just shades of gray, yeah. More than the black and white. Well, you know, the, the, the prodigal story, which, of course, is homage to Jacob mm-hmm. and Esau, is an interesting is study. It? Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. I've never thought about that. Oh, boy. Big time. And and so you look at these sons, and the older eldest, you know, this son of yours. Right. I've always done what was right. Wow. I mean, he's really the more egregious of the two sinners, if that you want to so measure good. it. I've never, yeah. The younger son was blatant in his sin, but he repents and comes back, right? Right, right. But it's just interesting that you said it was harder. I, I don't know. We're all, you know, I had a psychologist friend that would hold his finger up like to David. He would say, every one of my fingerprints are unique. Why would I try to, you know, put God in a pen and paper test? Hmm. And he would allude to like the Performax or the Enneagram sure. or the Myers-Briggs right, right. or whatever. He, why, why would I put my personality in a box when God made me unique? Hmm. And then we think of our trajectory. I mean, how, you know, the, the story of you meeting these guys from this church. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. How could that have happened? Really, I mean, it's interesting you're just saying that about just the uniqueness of it all. Because Monday night, I was at a youth pastor's conference up at Long Hollow, uh, north of town. And I was telling that room full of youth pastors. I was like, man, I'm just so grateful that when I got saved at 18 and two months, that I just got to stay weird. <laughs> You know, because I'm just really weird. Yeah. Like when I was in high school, I was just this weird troublemaker, you know, party thrower, just this guy who just always like my personality's always been like super extrovert. And God just allowed me to become a Christian under a guy named Benny Prophet and a guy named Alan Wilson. They were the youth pastors, the one two punch who, who God put in my life. And those men just gave me permission to stay weird. Mm-hmm. I was reading to these youth pastors the other night, Monday night. You know, Paul gets saved, and in Acts 9, 20, 22, 23, these little flyby passages, you see the very first time he goes into the synagogue, three days after he's a believer, and he preaches the gospel. And it just says he's accused of havoc. They're like, yeah. who is this causing havoc? And, and I'm, I'm telling that room the other night, I'm like, 
first time he shows up in Acts 7, he's causing havoc. Yeah. Three days later, he's causing havoc. Yeah. The rest of his ministry, 10,000 miles oh, on boy. foot, Mamertine prison, shipwrecked, wrote the Magna Carta of Christianity, just havoc. I'm so glad Paul switched teams, <laughs> but he stayed a havoc guy. And I've just been weird, you know? And I was telling these youth pastors, like, when God gives you someone weird <laughs> and, and they find their why, their purpose, to know him and make him known, let them be weird. Like, if they want to be the next yeah. chef, let them be the next chef. If they want to be the next Lin-Manuel, let them. And, they have a fingerprint no one else has. And we're, we're unfortunately, you know, uh, Hendricks would tell, Dr. Hendricks would tell the story about, you know, we bring people to Christ, get them a Bible study, which is important, give them the right language, and in two years, they sound like the rest of us. Right. We pickle them. As, as, opposed, the yeah, as opposed to saying, you know, who are your friends? Who are people that you hang out with? Right. And maybe we should pray for the 10 people like Luke did. 100%. Uh, yeah. The, and it's such an interesting story. But yeah, another line he said was, he goes, wherever Paul went, either a revival or a riot broke out. So good. Wherever I go, they serve tea. <laughs> That's so good. I'm totally stealing that for that night. Howard Hendricks. That was nine. one of That's his so million good. ones. Yeah. David Nasser, we can find out more about your ministry on the show notes we'll have about you are available to speak, you you do conference, you travel, you're still fully engaged, you do pulpit supply. Do you write anything? I'm starting to work on a new book. So I've written a few books before and I'm working on a new book right now. Yeah. So tell really us anything so. about it. It's really about the children in the wilderness. You know, like I, I just think it was so hard for these people to get out of Egypt. And then they get in the desert. And the sand it. is hot and the stuff. And that first generation probably so often was like, it's just, it's just easier to go back. Let's go back to slavery. Yeah. But the children that were born in that wilderness, they're not so attached to Egypt, but they haven't seen the promised land yet. And I feel like I'm a bit of a child of wilderness. And I think the people that God's giving me a, a voice into the ear mm -hmm. of at this moment, my own children I think so many people I speak to, like young pastors, young college students, young, they are children of the wilderness, you know. And the tension in that, and that's what I'm writing on right now, is I think they're new wine. And I want them to be careful not to not to spill the old wineskin. I want them not to kick sand in Moses' ear you know, and face when they bury him in the desert. But at the same time, like I want them to keep pressing towards the promised land. And so how do we become children of the wilderness, you know, have the, the courage to be in the desert and keep pushing towards what God has for us as the next generation while also not dishonoring the people who got us out of Egypt. Yeah. Honor, <laughs> you know? honor so, the past and plan yeah. for the future. So that's the new book and it's just very much in the beginning stages of it and everything. We'll but my day it. job is for others, which is, uh, you know, uh, working with kids who are in the foster care system and just help, trying to help them find safe and secure homes. So I wake up every day thinking about this new role God's got me in. And so the writing is happening you know 15 minutes at a time you know in the mornings but so i think in 11 years i'll have a book okay <laughs> i don't know if i'll be around to have you back that's right if so <laughs> that's exactly right <laughs> david thanks for coming by the studio oh such an honor appreciate you Blessings. thank you buddy thanks for all you do did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.